Uh, we'll be reading from Luke 16:19 through 31. So there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember in your lifetime you've received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Morning, welcome to Regeneration. If you're new here, the way we study the Bible is just actually just verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and now we're studying Luke. And if you've been here at any time in the past year and a half, we're still in the same book. Here we are, wrapping up chapter 16. And before we get started, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is something we cherish and that we love. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit, that you would touch each person's heart and mind so that we would be able to learn and our lives transformed by what we hear and how we apply it in our life. Pray, God, for your blessing upon your people here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we look at this third parable Jesus told uh, regarding men. And the first one, you can take a look back at it, is back in chapter 15. The second one starts in chapter 16, verse 1. That first one it was in regards to a man and his two sons, the, the parable of the prodigal son. The second one about a rich man and his uh, manager who wasn't so good. And now we're at this third parable about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Now Jesus had this continuing stream of storytelling with men as the main characters, and, and this really isn't random on Jesus' part. Luke wasn't just patching a bunch of stories together that he just recalled Jesus telling and just said, oh yeah, he told this story, and oh yeah, he told this story. He, he's not patching all this stuff together. Jesus told these stories in succession to give us a unified message, and Luke recorded it for us in this manner for a reason. Now, what was the reason for Jesus telling these stories in succession? Well, Jesus was pointing out abuse. How people mistreat one another. That there is maltreatment amongst people because they value things and they value stuff and they just value money more than they value people. And this really resonated with the people who were thought to be less than. Jesus was really attractive to people who weren't accepted by the religious establishment. And you look back to Luke chapter 15, verse 1, and it reads this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. People who were pushed away by religious folks were actually drawn to Jesus. They were drawn to God. And I think this happens today. 
The church at times may push people away from God. But God is drawing them to Himself. People who look like they're far from God in the eyes of those who are religious may actually be closer to God than we actually think. And you notice that it was not the religious people who were being changed by what Jesus was teaching. They actually didn't like what He taught. What did they do instead of listen to Jesus and repent? And you look back to Luke chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Him. So what does Jesus do? After verses 15 and 18, He goes into a story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. A story that will challenge the Pharisees about how they think about their future. Now before we jump into that, let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. And it reads this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, we all die. All of us die. And the time to think about death is not when you're breathing your last breaths, but when you're still alive and you're well. Because once you physically die, there are no more chances to influence your eternity. That's it. It's too late. It is written in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, there's no second chance after you die. That is it. So in our text this morning, Jesus goes into a story about one's eternal destiny. A story about a rich man, his five brothers, a poor man named Lazarus, Abraham. And this is the story that Jesus lays out starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, this man was obviously rich because he was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. Jesus is laying for us a background about how rich this guy was. Because if you owned purple clothes back then, it wasn't because you were a fan of Prince or Barney. It showed that you had money because purple dye back then was only used by the rich. It was not cheap. right? Grape Kool-Aid, you know. It was used by the people that were on a budget back then. The real purple stuff, the real good stuff, the purple dye that these guys are talking about was used from extracting the, uh, the, the mucus secretions from sea snails. It was called the spiny dimurex. These little sea snails, these little shellfish. And it was found in the eastern Mediterranean. And this extraction was laborious. I mean, think about it. How do you milk snails? How do you do that? So this is pretty obvious that this guy's rich. Because, you know, if a dude has to do this for a long time to just get a little bit, you have to have a lot of money for the dude to keep doing this for a long time, right? So, you know, a guy walking around with purple hands, you don't wonder, like, "Mm, I wonder what he does for a living. No, you knew. You're like, ooh, snail milker right there. Like, that, that guy's a snail milker. And they would milk thousands upon thousands of them. You'd have to, right, to to make that much. It was reported that it took 12,000 snails to yield 1.4 grams of dye, which really is only enough to dye the trim of a single garment. 12,000 for the trim, that is a lot of snail snot, right? That's a lot. So this guy has some serious cash because he was clothed in purple, 
clothed in purple. Not just the trim of his shirt, he's clothed in it. This guy's wearing the snot of millions of snails. Millions of this. Oh, now why was this purple dye so greatly prized in antiquity? Yes, it was exclusive. Yes, it was difficult to obtain. But this was the key thing. This color did not fade. This color didn't fade. This color actually intensified with weathering and sunlight. So this stuff was highly desired. It was really expensive. The dye would outlast the things that it was dyeing. And, and it became the status symbol for people to be dressed in this purple. It was a symbol of wealth. It was a symbol of royalty. This is a symbol of status. So people who had money, they wore this stuff. And yes, the Chinese were knocking off these purple garments back then too. They were the ones using grape Kool-Aid. And so... Another sign of wealth were these fine linens, right? The fine linens, which were worn as undergarments. And so this guy was decked out from his underwear to his outer garments. And not much has changed because clothing is still a status symbol. And it starts at infancy. Newborn babies wearing these name brand clothes and all they're going to do is throw up in them. And all they're going to do is leak through their diaper onto their stuff. So we've, so, so we've moved from snail snot to baby snot. It's really not all that different, right? It's the same thing. Now, a third sign of this guy's wealth was that he feasted sumptuously every day. Now, the Greek word used for how this guy ate is the same one used in Luke chapter 15 when, when the rich guy threw a feast for his, his prodigal son who came home. Remember, he said, kill the fatted calf, we're going to party. It's the same word used there. So the father in that story was wealthy, wasn't he? He was a wealthy man. But he didn't eat like that every day. It was for a special occasion. His, his lost son came home. And so he, he threw a party like that then. So, but this rich guy eats like this every day. So you can imagine how wealthy this guy is. That this guy lives in the lap of luxury every day. Just extravagance and lavishness and indulgence to the extreme. Verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Now, whose gate was this poor man laid? It's the rich man's gate. Now, the English translation to this Greek word gate doesn't do it justice. This is talking about a large gate. This is talking about a palace gate. We're not talking about white picket fence gate. Imagine entering a palatial estate and how the gate is just ornate and, and, it, and it's... In, in gold, and, and you know, it's, it's really nice. And so this gives us further insight into this guy's wealth. And as you read on, you'll notice that there's not much more to describe this man than that he was rich. This is about it. This, this is the description of this guy, was that he was rich. There's no mention of this guy's relationship to God, or no mention of how he loved people, or anything like that. Now picture verse 20 with me. The rich man comes and he goes in and out of his gate as he pleases, but here's this poor man, Lazarus, who is at the gate. He can't go in. He has to stop at the gate. He can go out, but he can't go in. He is stopped at the gate. Inside the gate, this guy is living lavishly and he has everything anyone could ever desire, but at the gate was Lazarus, this poor man, with nothing. Another word for us to take a look at is this word laid in verse 20. 
Because this word is not doing justice to the Greek language either in our English translation. The English word laid seems gentle, right? Laid. But this isn't what the Greek is trying to portray to us. The Greek word's definition is to be thrown. To be thrown or let go without caring where one falls. So Lazarus, this poor man, was thrown without care of how he fell at the rich man's gate. Can you imagine that? So one of two things is happening. People saw this guy here like, oh, let's throw him at the rich guy's gate. Maybe we'll get something to eat there. Boom. Or he is just so weak. He, he can't do anything and he's just making his way there and he just falls. He's so weak. He's so feeble. He, he can't even put himself down gently. So the rich man seems to have everything. Lazarus seems to have nothing except he has a one-up on the rich man in in, in something that he does have. He has a name. We're given his name. Jesus didn't give the rich man a name. He's He's a wealthy guy, but this poor man has a name. And this is the only parable where Jesus gave a name to one of his characters. And his name is Lazarus. Which is important because in the Hebrew, that name is Eliezer, the same name of one of Aaron's sons. You know, Aaron, brother of Moses, same name. Now, what does that name mean? It means whom God helps. That's what Eliezer means, and that's where Lazarus comes from, from this name Eliezer. So here's this poverty stricken man with the name whom God helps. Now, people listening to Jesus tell this story, they must have been just kind of really puzzled, thinking like, so you're telling us this story and you're giving this guy the name Lazarus? How is God helping this poor man? Jesus, this is weird. I mean, shouldn't you have given the rich man that name? Shouldn't the rich man's name be Lazarus? And Jesus says, if you're thinking that, you've totally forgotten what I said in Luke chapter 6. Because in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 23, it reads this Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus inverts all that we think is good. We would think Lazarus should be the name given to the rich guy. Jesus inverts all that stuff. He's saying, hey, you know, the, the, the clothes, the food, the house, the pets, all those things don't mean you're blessed if you don't have God. If I don't know your name. If you are without God, you might as well enjoy all that you have now because there won't be anything for you to enjoy later. You might as well live like sin to the highest. Well, the Pharisees didn't like that because they were lovers of money. And so they started ridiculing Jesus. Now verse 21, "...who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores." So Lazarus was this fixture at the gate. He wasn't just this transient visitor. He was either thrown there by guys or he just kind of just collapsed there. And he was just there hoping to get the scraps from the rich man's table. Now just a quick side note. 
How many of us have passed the same person on the street day after day that would like something to eat? We've just passed them day after day. And so this rich man came in and out of his own gate, passing Lazarus by, never addressing his need. How many of us do the same thing when we have the gospel? We have this thing, and we're just walking by people who need it. But we're just walking by them. Passing people who are in dire need of the gospel, but we just go in and out of work, in and out of school, in and out of the gym, or in and out of wherever we're going, and we have the gate right outside of our church where people are starving for the gospel while we feast on the Word of God in here. We're eating here. We are richly clothed by God, and we neglect those outside who are covered with sores. We are richly fed by God, and do we not even share a little of what we've been richly provided with for, with those who are without outside? Even the scraps that we have are better than those who have nothing. And how wasteful are we with our clothing and our food? I have a friend who used to be pretty high up at The Gap. And she used to help us with the clothing of orphans in Mexico. Do you have any idea of how much clothing and shoes and just accessories and all that stuff is destroyed, shredded by clothing designers? Do you have any idea? Tons. Tons upon tons upon tons. Because that's just one clothing designer. But all of them do this. And I understand that why they do this, because they don't want people uh, getting their donated products just to witness them, kind of sell them on the black market and distribute them and, and do that kind of stuff. So, so I understand that. So what we did was we, we, uh, we worked it out with, uh, with The Gap, some of the management there, that, that it wouldn't be distributed in the United States. We wouldn't distribute it here. And so every few months, we'd load up vans and moving trucks and just tons of stuff. We'd have this caravan going down to Mexico full of children's clothes and shoes and all this stuff that we brought to orphanages in Mexico. And so we distributed them there. You know, they wouldn't have to do a photo shoot. You would just have to go there and start taking photos and put that in the magazine. I mean, it was kind of awesome. All these kids are like, wow, look at all these kids. I mean, they're dressed really nice. And all these clothes, and they're all like gap kids, you know, walking around. And so, and, and so this went on for a while. And I was really tempted to like, oh, these boys, I need to give them faux hawks or something. This went on for a while until they decided it's just better for us to just shred everything. Never told the reason why. They just stopped. So hundreds, thousands of orphans being clothed, given shoes, it didn't cost them anything. In fact, it cost us something. It cost, we saved them money. Because they didn't have to pay for the destroying of those things, the shredding of those things, the disposal of those things. And it's the same with food. How much food do restaurants, markets, households just throw out at the end of the night? And again, I understand why people don't do it. In the case of food, people don't want to be liable for donating food because what if it gets someone sick and then they get sued and all this kind of stuff. So I understand. But it doesn't stop the fact that there are hungry people who want to eat. They're out there. So I read this article from Reuters this past week. And here are some highlights. 
Hard data is still being collected, but experts at the Reuters Food and Agriculture Summit in Chicago this week said an estimated 30 to 50 percent of the food produced in the world goes uneaten. The average American throws away 33 pounds of food each month. According to the Natural Resources Defense Council, which plans to publish a report on food waste in April, in a year, each person throws away almost 400 pounds of food. The U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that 23% of eggs and even higher percentage of produce ends up in the trash. In richer nations, edible fruit and vegetables end up in landfills because they are not pretty enough to meet a retailer's standards, have gone bad in a home refrigerator, or were not eaten at a restaurant. In developing countries, much food spoils before it gets to market due to poor roads and lack of refrigeration. High food prices are another factor since some people can't afford the food that's produced, said Patrick Woodall, research director and senior policy advocate for Food and Water Watch. Woodall told the Reuters Summit, it's not a situation where you have to massively ramp up production. Even in 2008, when there were hunger riots around the world, there was enough food to feed people. It was just too expensive. The access to clothing, the access of food between the rich and the poor is vast. If you don't believe me, you don't have to travel too far. Just go down to East Oakland and tell me when's the next time you bump into a Safeway. You won't. It's just a bunch of corner liquor stores. God is concerned with such inequality today. And he was when Jesus told this story as well. He is concerned with inequality of our world. The last part of verse 21. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, generally speaking, dogs weren't considered very clean animals back then, which is hard for me to consider because Joey is like my son. He's my 90-pound, 8-year-old lab who used to sleep with us in our bed until we had children, and now he sleeps on his own bed. Because back then, dogs were thought of to be more of scavengers than they were pets. Right? But these dogs were allowed at the gate, which tells us something. These aren't scavenger dogs. Because they were allowed at the man's gate. And if they were scavenger dogs, they wouldn't lick Lazarus. They would eat Lazarus. Right? So, so what this means is that these were house dogs. So this is another sign that this guy was rich because he owned house dogs. You don't just own house dogs back then. If you had a dog, it was because they had a purpose. They were out in the field guarding your sheep or your livestock or they were working dogs or, or they were guard dogs or they were something like that. These are just house dogs because they're just here licking wounds off of Lazarus. These are just pets. So this guy has serious bucks just to have dogs that hang out at the gate. Now something interesting was how Jesus told these stories of of unclean animals associating with people. Because if you look back to Luke chapter 15 in the story of the prodigal son, back in verse 15, that prodigal son found himself amongst pigs. This guy, he was once wealthy, but then he partied like it was 1999, and he was squandered it in reckless living, and all all the friends... Why am I using all these prince type of things? Anyway... All the friends he used to party with and buy drinks for and buy things for and all this stuff, nowhere to be found once he's out of money. He's found amongst pigs, an unclean animal. 
And so now you look at Luke chapter 16 and you look at Lazarus. He's with dogs. Considered an unclean animal. These dogs who are licking him. Unclean in that the Jews would not allow the dogs to be eaten. They were unclean animals. So these dogs were his only company. And so you have to also wonder why Lazarus was allowing these dogs to lick him. Was it because he was, you know, he, he didn't have any other companions and you know he'd just accept anything? Or was it because he was so weak he couldn't like fend them off, like get away from me? Just he was just so weak that he was just lying there. Whatever the reason, he he was in the company of dogs, and, and it seemed like no one else paid attention to him except these filthy animals. Verses 22 and 23. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. You see how death changes everything? Death starts the clock of everlasting life by ending the physical life. It is a necessary ending in order to start life everlasting. Now, notice how some things in the spiritual world don't change that much from the physical world. Verses 24 and 25. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. While we are in this physical world, we are in training for reigning. I stole that term from Dallas Willard. We're in training for reigning. We are preparing ourselves now to have heaven feel like home to us. If you have no desire to have a relationship with God, heaven will be a miserable place for you. You will not like it. It's not going to feel like home. You're going to hate it. See, God will honor your dignity to to not want to be with Him. He's not a bully forcing you to have a relationship with Him. Do some of you want to be with people who don't want to be with you? Do you want that? If you do, that's called codependency. Jesus, God, is not codependent. Yes, God will pursue you, but it only goes for so long. Your death. After you die, that's it. He will pursue you until then. Once you are dead, it's too late. He's not going to insist that you love Him. He's not up there in heaven like, please love me. Just love me. I did all these awesome things for you. Just love me. You owe me. You know all the sacrifices I've made for you. If you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend like that, what would you do? You'd run. You'd run hard and you'd run fast. I'd run from that psycho. I'd run. See, God's not like that. Right? He's not like that. God, God is confident with who He is. He's not wondering why people don't love Him. Why don't they love me? <laughs> or why don't they, why don't they want a relationship? He knows. He is God. And, and we're all going to have to face death unless Jesus returns before we die. But death is kind of the common denominator. Death is the great equalizer for all humankind. And after death, some things are different while some things are the same. They are different in that big shot who was on earth, who served money, will definitely not be the big shot in heaven, in the life everlasting. That will be totally different. It's the same in that 
not all things are equal. On earth, not all things are equal. In the spiritual realm, not all things are equal. Some people will have more than others, just like here on earth. Lazarus definitely had more than the rich man after his death. Just as the rich man had much more than Lazarus on earth. That's going to be the same. People are going to have different things. Now back to Luke 6 again in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? A good life, full of riches, full bellies, laughter, uh, possessions, reputation. That is not the everlasting goal. You can gain the whole world and all that it has to offer, but if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it only lasts until your last breath. And that's what Abraham told the rich man in verse 25. He said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. You had the good stuff. You enjoyed the good stuff. Making your choices to follow the ways of the world instead of following the ways of God. You decided to serve money rather than to serve God. You decided to not heed the law and the prophets, but you did whatever you wanted to do. What Abraham told the rich man was that the choices you made while physically alive, they have spiritual implications for life everlasting. The choices you and I make right now and while we're physically alive make a difference in our life everlasting. Now think about this. Think about how short our life really is, our physical life. The average life expectancy worldwide is 67.2 years. And it's higher in the United States. In the United States it's 77.5. So I'm halfway there. And you know what? Time speeds up as you get older. For you younger folks, you probably don't understand this yet, but I I guarantee you when you get there, you're going to be like, he was right. If one thing he said was right, it was that. (laughs) You know, when I was in high school, it felt like forever to get to 18 years old. It felt like forever. So the first 18 years of my life, it just felt like forever. And I was wondering, man, how do my parents live that long? This is so long. But then the last 18 years of my life, Man, they were short. They were so short. Like the first 18 years of my life felt so long. These last 18 years of my life felt so short. When I die and I look back at my life, I was like, wow, that was short. That was short. So don't waste your time focusing on the temporary things of this world. You, you invest your life in eternity. Because our time here is short. Luke chapter 16, verse 9, Jesus said, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. See that unrighteous wealth, all that stuff, it will fail. Because did you notice what Jesus said there? Jesus said, when it fails. He did not say, if it fails. He says, when it fails. When it fails, because you know why? It's all temporary. It's only going to last this certain amount of time. 
So use that stuff for eternal purposes. Don't use it just to feed your selfishness. Use it for eternal dwellings. That's what the rich man failed to do with Lazarus. He, he didn't use his stuff for people like Lazarus. He just used his stuff to, to get more pet dogs or buy a nicer gate or to eat better food or buy nicer clothes to get a nicer purple snot or whatever. But back in verse 24, did you notice that the rich man knew Lazarus' name? He knew his name. I mean, this is like insult to injury. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He knew his name. He knew that Lazarus was that poor guy laid at his gate, but he did nothing for him. He just kind of walked out of there. You know, he couldn't plead ignorance. I didn't know. I didn't know that there was this dead guy or oh no he's alive my dogs are licking him i didn't know he was there he knew his name and you remember what lazarus means what his name means it means whom god helps and so maybe as he's walking in and out of that gate he's thinking ah you know what god's gonna help him i mean his name whom god helps yeah hey all right see ya anyone here um do you have any great poupon you know and so he just just another side note how many of us go by people who, whom we know by name? And, and they have a need, but we just continue just to go by them. How, how many people do we know by name who, whom we have never shared the gospel with, but we know them? That's just a thought. But Lazarus and his namesake, whom God helps indeed proves to be true at the end of his life. Maybe not in his temporary earthly life, but in everlasting life. God did come through for him. And so we wonder, why do bad people seem to get what's good and good people end up with the short end of the stick? Why is that? And the Old Testament fathers of the faith knew what this felt like. You, you turn to Job chapter 21, verse 7, and Job says, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? So Job and Jeremiah had these questions for God in the moment. But if you read on, later they saw that it was just that. It was just momentary. Things like the wicked prospering are momentary. It only happens in their lifetime. But there are things for us to be really concerned about as followers of Jesus Christ. And that is life everlasting. Not just what's temporary. To live our life now in light of eternity. That's why Jesus instructed in Luke chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see how, how that's in light of everlasting, and that's not a temporary perspective? Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Lazarus had very little chance to enter into the rich man's home. But as slim as that may have been for Lazarus to enter into the rich man's home, it is an impossibility for the rich man to enter into heaven after he's dead. That is impossible. That is the threshold. 
As difficult it is for the poor to enter the domain of the rich on earth, it is impossible for the unbeliever to enter into heaven after they die. It is impossible. And there was a better chance of Lazarus to get a whole roast turkey from the rich man's feast while while on earth than for the rich man to, to get a drop of water from the fingertip of Lazarus' finger for him to get into heaven. After death, there is no crossing over between heaven and hell. That's it. And we don't all end up in heaven. Not all roads lead to heaven. You don't get there because you're a good person. What we do on earth plays into eternity. The decisions we make here play into eternity. Now, as we read this parable, we need to keep in mind that this is indeed a parable. Right? That this is an allegory. For example, in verse 22 of Jesus' story, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So is that saying that when we die, all of us are taken to Abraham's side? Is that what that means? I don't think so. And so there are a lot of doctrines that can be contrived as, they, as, as reading this parable or even from that one verse. But if you read the rest of the Bible about dying and going to Abraham's side, it's never mentioned after this story. Never. And if we did a little more digging as to, well, what does this mean then? What's going on here? Jesus was referring back to uh, common rabbinical teachings and, and writings. So Jesus was taking what was familiar to his audience and he's using these well-known teachings and these well-known writings and he uses them to connect with his listeners. And so that's what Paul did with the Athenians on Mars Hill, right? Right? And so it's the same thing with Jesus. Paul did what Jesus did. And what Jesus did was He pointed them to the main point, which is essentially this. What we do in our life on earth plays into eternity. That's kind of the main point. And you look at verses 23 and 24. I'm not so sure that we have physical eyes and physical fingers and physical water and physical tongues in heaven. This is an allegory. We don't have those physical things in heaven. Those are things for biological beings. But we're talking the Spirit here. So this is an allegory. So, so let's not build our entire doctrine of, of heaven and hell based on a parable. On this one parable. The main point of this parable is for us to be mindful that the decisions we make on this world have eternal implications. So, so try not to get hung up on biology when thinking of heavenly things. The main point is what we do here on earth plays into eternity. So while all of this minutia and this parable may be debated, I'm not saying I'm absolutely right. There are scholars of different thought. This is just what I think. But as all these things are being debated, there are some things within it that I don't think are debatable as a follower of Jesus Christ. One of those things is that heaven and hell are real. They are real. Also, while we are no longer biological beings, we are spiritual beings who retain our personalities. We have our personalities. We still have the distinguishing characteristics, and we're not just all clones, and we're all not, not all going to be the same thing. If someone were to ask you, where are you in your body, like in your physical body? Where are you? What identifies you? 
Can, can you point to something on your body that you say, that, that's me? This is me. You can't really say your heart, because if you got a heart transplant, then are you that other person? <laughs> Twilight Zone. So, so, you know, you can't do that, right? So where are you? You're, you're spiritual. You, where are you? And so Jesus was talking about spiritual things. So it's beyond our understanding in, in the physical realm and these physical understandable ways and these scientific ways in order for us physical beings to connect spiritually, to understand spiritually. So when we read these things, be careful how you understand them and how you apply them. For example, the rich guy is in hell and the poor guy is in heaven. So are we all called to be poor? No. Because if that's the case, then let's just make everybody poor and we're all in heaven. Let's just manipulate the game. And we'll just all be poor. And we'll all go to heaven. Right? And we can't do that. It's just simply not true. Anyway, if you look at one of the key characters in that story, Abraham, that was a rich dude. Right? That's a rich dude. So it's not about quantity of how much you have or how little you have. It's about the heart. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Something interesting about Lazarus is that you don't hear a word from him. You read the whole thing, you don't, you don't hear a peep from him. We don't find him to be incredibly down when he's destitute, and we don't find him to be incredibly up when he's in heaven. This is nothing. You don't hear anything from him. And, and I think this is important to keep in mind because when things aren't looking so good on earth, to know that we're experiencing what is temporary, that's a really accurate way to look at things. Right? Things are bad, I know. But, you know, I'm going to die. <laughs> it's all temporary. So, you know, what, what, what does it have on you? And when things are really great, it's also good to, to know that things are temporary. Because if not, then, then you carry that sense of entitlement with you to heaven. Right? Hey, I made it, man. I, I had all this stuff. I have a staff and I have money and I have all this stuff. When I'm in heaven, you think that you're entitled to the same things. You think that, you know, that you're owed the same thing because, hey, God, you know, I did everything else and I'm a follower of yours. And, you know, give me some servants. Give me some money. And I think this rich guy had this sort of sense of entitlement that Lazarus didn't. That he felt that he belonged in heaven or that he had some rights or something. Read here, verses 27 through 29. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into his, this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Did you catch that about the rich guy? He's still barking orders even though he's in hell. We are in no place to bark orders from hell. If you're there, just you're done. Right? You, you, you might have been a big shot on earth. There are no big shots in hell. Your time is done. Everyone is already warned in, in the law and the prophets that are before them. The Bible is before them. Verses 30 and 31. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
The confidence of everlasting life in heaven with God is not contingent on miracles. It is found in the Bible. If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, if you don't believe the Bible, if you don't believe the Word of God, you won't believe in Jesus Christ if you have all these miracles suddenly. If the Bible has no importance to your life, Jesus is not going to be important to your life. Now, if we were all honest with what we wanted in life, how many of us would choose to have Lazarus' life on earth? Anyone? Anyone want to be having sores and have dogs lick you? Anybody? How many of us would rather have the rich man's life? I'm being honest. I would. I'd choose to have the rich, rich guy's life all day. Nice clothes. Right? Nice underwear. Good eats. Fancy parties. House with a big ornate gate. You know, a bunch of pet dogs. Man, that sounds good. That's a nice sounding to me. But... But all of that changes for me if I put it in light of eternity. Then it's like, oh no, Um, that's nice, but I would rather have that. Everything changes if you put it in light of eternity. I don't want his life after death after all. And I'd like his temporary life, but I don't want to be in torment and away from God. And if being in that temporary life means that I go there, then I don't want that temporary life. To be at a place where I have to plead for mercy and that I'm in anguish forever? No thank you. And so I think that this is a problem that many of us have. We don't live life with eternity in mind. It's just what's in front of us. What we're doing right now. The temporary things which are also important. I don't want to make them insignificant things because the now has eternal ramifications. So these things that we're doing now are indeed important. But we don't live in the now with eternity in mind. That's not good. So we get stuck thinking that life is all about temporary things like clothes and possessions and food and homes and and pets. What would change in our life if we put everything in eternal perspective? How different would your life look if you did that? How would you live your life if you knew the way you were living right now would have eternal ramifications and you can end up in everlasting torment and anguish? If you knew you were going to end up like Lazarus in eternity, then is your life really that bad right now, even though it is pretty bad? But if you had that perspective, yeah, things aren't so good right now, but I have Jesus. And so I find this so challenging for myself because I find myself to be a rich person. right? And there are many times my heart is for things other than God. And I don't think I'm alone in this. We live in the Bay Area, one of the wealthiest places in the world. Now, maybe not Oakland in particular, and maybe not our neighborhood in particular, but as individuals here, most of us have a lot. We really do. Because just by a show of hands, how many of you have seen the ocean? You've seen it. How many of you have been to the mountains? You've you've been there. 
Do you know that most kids in this neighborhood have never touched the water even in the bay? Alameda is like 10-minute drive from here where they can get to the bay. They've never even been to the bay. Not that you want to touch the bay. That's pretty sick water. But I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Most of the kids in this neighborhood haven't been to the woods. And I'm not talking somewhere famous like Yosemite or Lake Tahoe or something. I'm talking about Oakland Hills. Ten-minute drive up the hills. Most of the kids here have not been up there. We have so much. Yeah, I mean, you saw all the hands lifted, all the experiences that we've had. We have so much. And this is one of the dangers we have having upward mobility like we do. That since we have such relatively easy access to things like, like traveling and education and money and relationships and church, some of us may be fooled, like the rich man, into thinking that heaven's just part of the package. And that we'd be really surprised if we didn't end up there. And that if we didn't end up there, we'd just be barking orders for someone to give us some water. And so we just throw it in there with the rest of the stuff that we have access to. But Jesus says, no, you cannot serve God and money. And again, this is not a a quantity issue. It's not about how much one has or doesn't have. It's about where our heart is, where our treasure is. So you're wealthy. How are you going to serve the kingdom with your wealth? Is it going to be for selfish desires? Or will you bless others who are in need of compassion? Who are in need to get to the eternal dwellings for that gospel to be shared with them? If you are poor, how are you going to serve the kingdom with what you do have? You might not have a ton of material possession, but as long as you have breath and you are alive, you can share the gospel. You can be a listening ear to somebody. You can be a voice of encouragement, a worshiper of God. You have things to offer. And many of times, we're concerned with the things we have done, whether it's good or bad. I'm a good person because I do good things. I'm a bad person because I've done these bad things. But God will look at more than just what you do. God will also look at what you don't do. The good we didn't do and the bad that we didn't do. James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's not just what you do, it's also what you don't do. Isn't that freaky? I'm freaked out by that because, you know, I, I know what to do and I do good and I give my pat on self on the back. But, but when I don't do something, I don't think about it as sin. I just like, oh, I'm too tired. Think about all the right things that we didn't do. And so with all these righteous goody-two-shoes may be able to brag about the bad things that they didn't do. But how many of us can honestly say we're good about doing right at every opportunity made available to us? And this is one of the dangers with religious clubs meeting in churches all around the world today. Because we can easily be fooled that we're okay with God because we showed up to church. That we sang some songs. That we looked up the Bible. That we gave some money. And we think that everything's just fine. When it's really all about where our treasure is. Where is our treasure? Is it really with God? Or is it elsewhere? Are Moses and the prophets enough for you? Or do you need to see some show? 
Because if Moses and the prophets are not enough, nothing will be enough. The Word of God is enough and it tells us about Jesus, how He loves us, why He came. If there is one takeaway from today, from this message, please take this away with you. Study your Bible. Study your Bible. You can forget all the other things that we've talked about. Just take this away. Study your Bible. But Pastor Albert, that's not what Luke 16 is really about. This parable is not about studying your Bible. I know, but if you studied your Bible, you wouldn't need me to tell you that. Because you just know. You'd be like, yeah, all right, I do know what this is about. If you don't study your Bible and heed its teachings, why even bother coming to church and listening to me? Why? It doesn't make any sense to me that you would waste an hour, hour and a half of your life to listen to me if you aren't studying your Bible. If you are studying your Bible, this probably makes a lot more sense to you and we we can get into it and we can get deeper and we can do our things. But if you're not even doing that part of it, why bother listening to me? There are so many people better than me who can expound the Bible for you, who are better readers, who are better at doing this stuff. Why bother? I'm not going to transform your life. The Word of God will. As you study the Word of God and the Holy Spirit fills your life, God will transform your life. I'm not going to do that. I'm just an instrument. Even if you do are transformed by something I said, it's not me. The Word of God has grabbed a hold of you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your servant Luke who has written down these stories in succession to show us our depravity, to show us that the things that we're doing now in the present have eternal implications. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us your vision. Help us to see through your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.